0: Our scripture reading this morning is found in Psalm 34, verses 8 through 19. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you, his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you to fear the Lord. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. This is God's word, it is true, and it is given out of his love. You may be seated.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Ray. Well, again, it's great to be worshiping together this morning. We are in the middle of a series through the book of 1 Peter, and uh, we our, our bread and butter, the thing we like to rely on the most here as we gather to study God's Word on Sunday mornings is going verse by verse through whole books of the Bible because, like Reagan just said, we do believe that this is God's Word, that it's true, and it's given out of His love. And so everything we need for life and godliness is found in these words. And so so we're about halfway through the book of 1 Peter, and I hope that you have been uh, growing from it as, and being challenged by it as much as I have. It's been a really profound book, I think, for this uh, this particular cultural moment we find ourselves in, but also just for what it means to be a follower of Christ, that there's so many different truths here that we need to lean into um, all the days of our life as we walk with Jesus. And so um, the, one of some of the things that we've seen, like last week we at for uh, Easter, we talked about um, the... Concept of hope and what it means to have your hope in Jesus. And so we looked uh, back at the resurrection and said, uh, if Jesus rose from the dead, that changes everything about the universe. And so we can have confidence that if he is powerful over sin and death, then that means that our future is going to be secure. And we saw also in that passage of 1 Peter where he says that our inheritance is being guarded by God himself. And so if God is the one guarding our future, we know with a great deal of confidence that it is going to work out as he intended for us. And so uh, then also we've seen different things in Peter, like this idea of like, our identity should fuel our obedience, okay? It's not our obedience that changes our identity. It's our identity that fuels our obedience. So what I mean by that is, is that God has saved us. He has made us a new creation. He has he has adopted us as sons and daughters. He has given us a new birth in him. And all of that was done by grace. There was none of the works that we could do to ever earn God's love. It was purely his undeserved kindness and favor towards us is why he saved us. And if God loved us that much, if he saved us and made us new, then out of joy from that, out of response of all the gratitude that we have, have towards Jesus, that's what fuels our obedience in him. And I think that's such an important thing that a lot of times we miss as American evangelicals. We we have this concept of like the harder I work, the more God will love me. And the gospel is the exact opposite news of that. It's that no matter what work you have done or failed to do, God loves you because of his grace and his kindness and his mercy and nothing else. That's one of those other themes we've seen in Peter. And another thing we've seen the last few weeks as we've been working through the the middle section of of 1 Peter is this idea of a, a missional holiness. He talks about the importance of doing good deeds and being known as those who do good deeds even among the world that doesn't love Jesus. And what he's saying is that our good deeds create good news opportunities. So, The gospel is the good news of God's saving grace through faith in Jesus and the more we live out good character and the things that God has called us to, the more that that gives us a chance to share with the world all the things that God has shown us, all the things that he has done for us and all the beauty of who he is. So that, that's just kind of like a quick recap of where we've been at in First Peter. But there's this one concept that I want to draw our attention to as we get going. It's this idea of, that we've mentioned every week as we've studied First Peter. And it's our identity as elect exiles uh, in the culture that we find ourselves. And those two things are, are kind of hard to keep together, right? So elect means that you are chosen and loved by God, that he has made you his sons and daughters. It's a sign of privilege and blessing that comes from him. An exile, though, is someone who is far from home. They don't have a homeland. They're living in another culture that is not fully comfortable with them, that they they are open to being persecuted and suffering and all those things. And so it's it's easy to just say we're elect exiles. We're chosen and loved, and we are persecuted and will suffer as we are not in our current home. But when you stop and think about it, how those two things fit together is a very difficult nuance to keep in balance. And as humans, we, we struggle to keep competing ideas in that tension together. And so what I want us to do this morning is to revisit this. the title of our series. We're calling First Peter Thriving in Exile is the theme that we're trying to work at and saying, if we are in exile, if this world is not our home, how can we thrive as we follow Jesus all the days of our life? Because those concepts don't seem to go well together, right? We like to think that thriving is life being good and kind and comfortable and going our way in exile where you're homeless and you don't have an identity in your culture and all those things, those seem to be in tension with each other. But we're not saying that we can thrive after our exile when we get to heaven. I think the promise that Jesus has for us is we can thrive even in the here and now. Even when we live in a world that has different values and different concepts and doesn't fully understand what it means to follow Jesus. All the things that positions the world to be against the church of Jesus is actually opportunities for us to find our thriving and our good and all the things that God has for us even in this time of exile. So that's that. We're going to try to work out this morning as we study uh, First Peter. So, would you pray with me, and then we'll open God's Word together. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for this opportunity to study 1 Peter. Uh, We're we're so grateful that uh, your Holy Spirit inspired your apostle to write these words and that in these words we can find all the the truths that we need to to walk out this difficult season of of exile that we find ourselves in as we're in a culture that is going through massive changes and different values and shifting priorities and all these things. God, we're so grateful that we can come back to this anchor every single week. We can come back to the fact that, that your word is what uh, you have given us because you love us and we can study it and be changed by it and transformed into it so that we follow your son with greater clarity. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in First uh, Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 8. If you uh, have a Bible turn there, if not, there's some Bibles on the table in front of you, and it's really important, we're going to jump around through First Peter a little bit this morning, so having the text open, we always want to do that when we come, is just rely on the word of God before us, not necessarily the things that are coming out of my mouth as, um, um, by, from themselves. So where, where we've been at, uh, well, let me, read, let me read the first two verses, First Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, and I'll kind of set up the table for where we're going. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. And so, so if you've been here with us the last few months as we've been going through these middle sections of 1 Peter, we saw in chapter 2 where, where Peter says that, that the, our, if we're known for good deeds among the pagans, God will get glory from how we behave with good character among a world that doesn't know who Jesus is. And then he gives us all these kinds of different examples of what it looks like to thrive as exiles. He He talks about us as citizens. Then he talks about uh, us as our vocation, as what it means to be servants of a boss who is an authority over us. Then he talks about uh, marriage and what it means to be a godly wife or a godly husband. And and now when he's ending this section, he says, finally, all of you. So he's been zooming in on different aspects of the church and saying, this is how you follow Jesus as a particular subset of the church, as as a wife or as a citizen or as a servant, all these different things. And now he's he's pulling back and saying, this is something that is true for all of us, for, for for everyone here who is a follower of Jesus. These are the things that you need to be known for. And, and then he gives this five different things that we should be known for a, as a church. And then he tells us how to respond to those who are outside of our church. And, and the fact that he says, starts this off by saying, all of you means that it's a church-wide thing, which means that it's a church culture issue we're talking about. Okay, so a, a culture is a, the values and priorities and the, the unwritten rules of a people, group that, a people group that define who they are. So I, I had a friend who just started working at Dutch Bros, and when he when he was onboarding there, they gave him a list of certain priorities that they want him to do as an employee. And what, what they're doing is they're saying, we want the culture of Dutch Bros to be this particular thing. And if you've ever been there, you know they are, stick very tight to their culture it's a very very thick culture uh, for that coffee shop we we have a similar kind of concept with our church we have six priorities listed in the back there as you come down the ramp and what we say is we pray that those are the things that define what it means to be a part of missio de falcon that we would be gospel centered and authentically loving and all those all those things what peter is doing is that same kind of concept here he's giving us a list of five things and saying these are the things that you need to be known for as a church and if you are known for these things, it will create this gospel-centered culture, this, this, this thick, uh, um, visceral uh, image of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so when you read through these five things, it's a very enticing picture. I mean, everyone would want to be a part of a church that embodies these things. And by God's grace, I think he has helped us grow in these things, and we pray that we would continue to be more and more of these things. So let's look at, again, there's two sides of this culture coin. The first are five attributes we need to embody, and then he gives us a picture of how we respond to people who are outside of our church. So let's look again at verse 8. He says, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. And so these are the things that should characterize us as followers of Christ. He says that we should have unity of mind. Uh, Unity is not uniformity. Okay, a lot of times people pursue uniformity where they want to have other people who agree with them on everything, who have their same economic background, their same political views, their same hobbies and interests, all those kinds of things. And what sociologists have done is they've done studies on the American church and they've found that the number one reason people choose which church they attend is whether or not it aligns with their personal preferences, their, their racial background, their political background, their social background, those kinds of things. Okay, but that is not unity, that's uniformity. If I can find a group of people that agree with me on everything, it's really easy to be united. But what COVID showed us, right, what 2020 showed us is even the appearance of unity, if it's built on something other than Jesus and his gospel, it is very easily shaken. It is very easy to get offended at one another and to leave and find a new church because you don't like something that was said to you or a decision that is made or something like that. But what Peter is saying is we need to have unity of mind. That doesn't mean that we agree on everything, but that the central tenet of what our minds are oriented towards is the same thing that our church is built on the foundation of God's word and his, his truth and the beauty of his son. And if that's the thing that we're gathering around, you can have a very diverse group of people that all worship together because we recognize that it's not about us and our preferences. It's about being united around something that is bigger than us. And so because of that, that means that if a church is has unity of mind, there won't be any cliques or different uh, subsets that feel loved or unloved, but rather we're all in this together. Like what what a beautiful picture of what it means to be a church, to be have unity of mind. He says well, also we should have Sympathy. Okay, sympathy means to share one another's emotions. So we see Paul mention this, Paul mentions this in Romans twelve, fifteen where he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. As a church, we should have sympathy for one another. We should combine our emotions and whatever you are feeling, I should love you enough to allow myself to feel the same things. Okay, that's really important in seasons of suffering, right? When we weep with those who weep, you need people around you to remind you of God's goodness. But it's also true, like Paul says, in the seasons of rejoicing, right? It's that seasons of joy that you most often realize the people who are around you can uh, make the joy you feel exponential because it's a group celebrating together. That's what a a church should feel like. Also, he says we should have brotherly love, okay, and so this is that word Philadelphia. It's actually the only place in the New Testament that this word comes up, and what Peter's doing is saying love is a central attribute of what it means to be a Christian, Okay, love is not just giving people whatever they want, whenever they want. Love is desperately wanting what's best for another person. He's saying we should desperately want what's best for another person, and we should do that especially for those who are our brothers or our sisters in Christ. So throughout the book of 1 Peter, he's been talking about what it means to be adopted into his family. He says that, we have been, that God has caused us to be born again. And if we have new birth in Jesus, that means that, uh, that if he is our father, then everyone else who has new birth or new life in Jesus is also our siblings. And so we need to love one another. Like, we need to be a church family that, that holds one another up with the type of love that means we want what's best for another. And also we see throughout the Bible that when we love each other well, that is the thing that is the most powerful for our witness to people who are not yet believers. Okay. A church that is loving and caring for one another, it doesn't become an inward-focused thing that we're only looking for each other. It actually is the thing that then spills out onto people who aren't yet believers, and they say, that is a very uh, enticing community. I want to be a part of a place that loves each other to that great extent that they have. Uh, the fourth thing is he said to be tender-hearted. so that means to be caring or compassionate. Again, we, we don't want to be rough with one another. We want to be gentle. Jesus is gentle and lowly. We want to model that with our interactions. And lastly, he says that we should be humble. Okay, so humility is such an important attribute of what it means to be a healthy community. And so there's two important sides to what it means to be humble. The first one is a a thinking of other people first, a posture that says, I'm going to take the back seat, I'm going to put other people and their needs ahead of me. Uh, Tim Keller famously said that humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And that's that's one attribute of humility that's really important to keep in mind is putting other people first. The other side of humility, though, is more of an intellectual concept. I think Peter's getting at here when he says a humble mind. And so humble mind or humble thinking would say, I'm open to the possibility that I'm wrong. Right? There, there are some things that I might think are true and they might not actually be true. I, I might be doing something in an incorrect way. I need to have a humble posture that says I'm teachable. I'm open to learning. And I think those are those things where like, it's easy to see pride in other people. Like Pride is the opposite of humility. Like, when you encounter someone who is prideful, you're, you're immediately repulsed by them. What is really difficult to see is pride in your own life. Uh, God has been uh, profoundly showing me this last few days even how much my life is not this humble posture of putting other people's needs first, but rather I tend to put my own thoughts, my own ideas, my own needs ahead of everyone else around me. And I think that's not only my default posture, but that's the default posture of a lot of us, right? That selfishness and that pride that says, I'm going to look out for me first, and if other people can get the leftovers, that's fine. But what Peter is saying here is if we're going to have this thick gospel culture where the world can see how Jesus has changed our lives, we need to be known as a people that are humble. We need to be known as people that are loving, that are compassionate, that are, that are sympathetic, that are united, that, that love each other with tender hearts, all of these things. And I was listening to a, a sermon a friend of mine preached on this passage, and what he pointed out is every single one of these attributes is a demonstration of love, okay? And if you are genuinely going to love someone, it is always going to cost you something. The, the idea of loving without sacrifice is a nonsensical phrase, You cannot love someone without also sacrificing. And so the examples we see are like the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Right? Or, or, or later on in John when Jesus says um, that greater love has no one than this, that he give up his life for his friends. Okay, Both of those definitions of love from the Gospel of John both require sacrifice. So if we're going to have the type of community that loves each other well, we need to be willing and able to sacrifice just like Jesus did. Another thing we see in these, all these five things is they all require community. Um, um, that, that, that concept of like we did with the child dedications a little bit ago, you cannot be a Lone Ranger Christian. You cannot follow Jesus by yourself independent of other believers because how can you have demonstrate unity if you're by yourself all the time? Who is there to be sympathetic with you if you're not in deep community where people can know what's going on in your life? How, how can you have a tender heart towards people and be isolated from them? All of these require a relational intentionality where we're going to be close to one another in community. So that's, that's the first verse, that what it means to have this thick gospel culture. And then he says also that needs to spill out in how we interact with people who are not yet followers of Christ. So look at verse nine. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. And Peter here is very famously, he's, he's, he's following Jesus' teaching, right? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, uh, turn the other cheek when someone attacks you, right? So Peter's aligning with Jesus' teaching. But more importantly, Peter is aligning with Jesus' example, Like, think back to chapter 2 where it said that Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He's using that same word and phrase saying we need to follow the example of Jesus when we interact with people who are outside the body of Christ. And the reason that we do that is when we follow Jesus' teaching and when we follow Jesus' example, we are actually following God's character. So in Romans 2, Paul says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Okay, so so ki- a posture of kindness towards those outside our church, a posture of kindness towards those who are attacking us and saying mean things about us and saying that we're the, we're the bigots and the ones who are messed up and don't know what we're talking about, a posture of kindness reflects the posture of God to those who are not yet followers of Christ. And, and that's why I love that phrase. It's not you're a believer or a non-believer. You are a believer or you are not yet a believer, Right? Our posture towards people who aren't yet followers of Christ is one that says God's kindness towards you is designed to draw you towards repentance. And so when God gives us the opportunity to bless someone who is cursing us, he is giving us the chance to model the character that he showed us. How did God treat you before you repented? He, he was kind and gracious and merciful towards you. And it's God's kindness and grace and mercy that draws you into repentance. And so when we respond in kind to people who are cruel to us, we're modeling the same character of God. Okay? And that's the, how the people of God have always been called to respond. So let's look at verses 10 through 12. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And so th- this, that should sound familiar because that's a quote from Psalm 34, the passage that Reagan read as we got started this morning. And the reason, Paul, uh, P- reason Peter is, quote, I hate that Peter and Paul are so close to one another, and every time I'm trying to quote one or the other, I always get it backwards in my head. Anyway, um, so what Peter is doing here is he is quoting Psalm 34, and he's saying that God has designed his people to thrive. All right, l- verses 8 and 9, that's a picture of a person whose heart is thriving in and in, in line with what God is doing. But what he's doing now is he's going all the way back to the Old Testament and saying that this is how God has always designed his people to behave. He has always designed us for thriving. This desire of obtaining a blessing is something that God desires for his people. When he says, um, who would like to love life and see good days? I mean, who who wouldn't want to love their life and see more good days? I mean, like, yes and amen, please sign me up. But then he says that it's someone who pursues peace and who lives out the righteousness of God. And that concept of pursuing peace is, again, right in line with Jesus' teaching when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. And if you're going to pursue peace, if you're going to be a peacemaker, I love the thing about both of those verbs is that they're active. It's not just that we're going we're to hold back and we're not going to rock the boat and we are hope we don't offend anyone, but we're going to be forward moving and we're moving towards people when, even when there's conflict so that we can work towards peace. We're we're pursuing peace actively. We're not waiting for it to come to us, but we're gonna make and create peace because that reflects the character of God. And so this beautiful promise is saying that God has always designed his people for thriving. And so we get to say like good life, loving your life and having good days, that sounds like a great invitation. So so what I want us to do then for a little bit is just reflect and think on, when you think of what is the good life, what comes to mind? Like these verses say that God wants you to see good days. He wants you to love life. What does that mean to you, though? Like, think about that for a second. What, is, what, what does a good life look like? What characterizes good days? And, and I think the thing that we first, if we're honest, the first thing that comes into mind are things that make our life comfortable. right? It, it, it's things that bring us joy. It's a good life is, you know, a, a good beverage and a good vacation with some good company, something like that. Right, or a good life is your kids uh, b- being successful and growing up and, and having good lives and th- those kinds of things. And we, we have these very external concepts of what is a good life. And what we've done a lot through this book of First Peter is kind of turn that on its head and say, like, no, the good life is not your own comfort, right? Like, a good, the good life is not the, the things that the world pursues, all of those things. But this week, as I reflected on this passage, the thing that it made me realize is, I think oftentimes I've been so quick to fight this heresy of the prosperity gospel, right? The the heresy that says God only wants you wealthy and happy, and if you're ever sick, it's because you don't have enough faith, all, all that kind of garbage. We've been so quick to fight that heresy that we've swung the pendulum too far and almost made it seem like God is this evil, vindictive guy who doesn't want anyone to be happy. And if you smile in church, he's going to squelch you because you're not being authentic with the brokenness that's really going on in your life. And I think, with, I think the balance that we see in this passage here is like God is a good father. like He does want what's best for you. And, and what's best for you isn't always nice things and vacations and, and life being comfortable, uh, but it sometimes is. Like, like God in his kindness does give us good gifts. The problem is when we look at those gifts and we pursue the gift rather than the giver. Right? It's like that famous example of like Christmas morning. Like, like if, if you give your kids all these amazing gifts and they fall in love with the gifts themselves and don't come back to you in gratitude for what you've given them, you would say that that kid is not experiencing the love that you actually have for them. So the same is true with, with us and God. I think that, that there are seasons where God's blessing is seen in like a peaceful walk at it, looking at a beautiful sunset. Right, and, and your life feels alive and, you, and you're aware of, of God's presence and his love in your life. Uh, there's times where like, you get to go on vacation in the mountains and see the beauty of his creation. And that's a demonstration of a, a good day and, and God's love for you and all those things. Uh, the problem is that those things are, are very shallow saviors. Like, they, they can never be something that we could put our hope in. Uh, but at the same time, uh, God does desire us to, to have good days, like he says, to love life and to see good days. That's what Jesus says in John 10 where he says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the fullest. You may have life and have life abundantly. Like, like, like Those types of thriving moments are things that God desires for us. The problem is we just can't make that an end in and of itself. And so, so I think the, the counterpoint, the, the thing that brings this pendulum to this happy little balance that we can, can follow Jesus with faithfulness is recognizing that what we're, what we're pursuing is joy and not happiness. So happiness is everything in my life is going well, therefore my spirits are up. But happiness is very easily crushed, right? When things start to not go well, our happiness disappears quickly. But joy, the definition I love that we use of, for joy, joy is an awareness of God's glory that produces a triumphant confidence bigger than our circumstances. And if I am aware of God's glory and I have this triumphant confidence that the future is going to be his kingdom and all of his glory, that gives me some confidence that's bigger than my circumstances. So when things go well, I can have joy and when things go poorly, I can still have joy because I'm rooting it in those things. And that's that's again that's God's desire for his people. He has designed us for thriving that uh, verse 12 at the end where he says that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Uh, but the opposite of that is this invitation that the, the face of the Lord, the kindness of the Lord is towards those who have been uh, come to him in faith. Right, like that that benediction that we use a lot of times as we end church, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Like that's the same concept that Peter is getting here is this idea that God has has designed his people for thriving. Uh, so, So that principle being true, like God has designed his people for thriving it's crazy how quickly, though, we do move that pendulum back to this idea of this prosperity gospel. How quickly we're like, okay, thriving means things are going to go well in my life. But that is not where Peter goes next. Look at verse 13 and 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. And, and so I love these verses seem completely contradictory. He's asked this rhetorical question, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for doing good? Zealous for doing good means like you're living out that psalm we just read, verses 12, or uh, 10 through 12. Who can harm you? Like the the answer to that rhetorical question is no one. There's no one who can bring you harm. And then the very next verse he says, even if you should suffer for doing good. And so which is it, Peter? Are we going to suffer or is there no one who can harm us? And I think that's the tension of why this issue can be so difficult, is ultimately, if you are a follower of Christ, there is no one who can harm you, and you will still experience suffering. And I think what he's getting at is this idea of harm has to do with ultimate destiny. Like, if you are harmed, it means that, that you're being crushed, that your hopes are dissipating, that, that your future is, is bleak and dark. But suffering is just the circumstances that come into your life that make things difficult. What Peter is saying is, is if you are a follower of Christ, no one can harm you even though you will at different seasons experience suffering as you walk out this, this life of faith. And so, so that's why we have this question of like, what is your hope in? Because if you hope for a comfortable life, then that hope will be easily destroyed. You will be easily harmed. But if you hope for a close relationship with Jesus, then even when you suffer, you will still find that hope sure and steady. Okay, whatever, whoever holds your hope has the power to harm you. And if Jesus holds your hope, you have this confidence that no one can ever truly harm you. Even if they take your life, what, what is that, right? To, to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, you will go to be with Jesus if it, the ultimate sacrifice was ever even asked of you. So uh, Paul says this in Romans 8, 31. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? That's this same concept. No one can harm you because God is for you. Uh, And even though God is for you and no one can harm you, you will suffer because God sometimes uses that suffering in order to bring about our growth. So so what we've seen is God designed his people for thriving and thriving and suffering can sometimes coexist. Thriving and suffering can coexist. Let's see where he goes next, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Okay, so so if thriving and suffering can coexist then what that should do, and if no one can harm us, if Jesus is the one holding our hope, no one will ever be able to harm us, then that means we should have a a high, high degree of confidence when we interact with people who are not yet followers of Christ. We should, we should have our, our hope set firmly on Jesus. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. We're, we're giving him the keys to the car. We're saying that he's the one in charge of our lives. And because of that, no one else who brings suffering into our lives can ever damage our hope. And if that's the case, then we should have a confidence when we share our faith with other people, knowing that Jesus is already the king of the universe, and he's going to work in this situation, no matter if it brings good or if it brings suffering into our lives. And and so the expectation that Peter is saying here in this verse 15 is that if we live out a life of faith amidst suffering, if our hope is firmly in Jesus, even when things are going bad, that is going to perk some interest. People are going to have some questions for us about how we're going about this. And because people are going to have questions for us, he says, always be prepared to give an answer, a reason for the hope that you have within you. And this is a famous verse for uh, apologetics, this idea of defending the Christian faith. And so what, he, what he's doing is saying is like, if we live out our walk through suffering with faith, it will prompt questions, and we need to be ready to answer those questions. You, we need to be ready at any moment to share the good news of Jesus with anyone that we meet. Uh, when, when, if you're a partner in Mister Falcon, one of the questions we ask in our partnership conversations is how would you share the gospel with someone who is not yet a follower of Christ? And the reason we ask that question is because we all need to be ready to say, hey, if, if you want to know the reason why I have hope, here it is. This is what Jesus has done for me. We need to be prepared to do that. But when we give a reason for our hope, he says, I love this in verse uh, 15, he says, we need to do it with gentleness and respect. Like, and have you noticed like, when people talk about apologetics or defending the faith, they're often the most least respectful and most not gentle people in, in any community of faith. And I think what it is is a lot of times what people that are drawn to apologetics or defending the faith, they're drawn to it not because they want to give a reason for the hope that they have. A lot of times they can be drawn to it because they love winning arguments and they, they love being proven right or shown that they're right. And that's not what Peter is saying here. Peter is saying that you should be so confident in what Jesus has done in your life that if someone asks you why you have hope, you can give them reason reasons for your faith with it full of the spirit of who Jesus is with respect and kindness and gentleness and all of those things and so so but then through that we we can't get over verse 17 though because we're talking about how we can have hope and uh, no one can harm us even when suffering comes into our life but then verse 17 says for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil and again if if this verse is the first time if this is the first time you're reading this verse this should knock you off your feet Because this is not how we typically view God, right? That somehow suffering could be a part of God's will for our lives. And so we we have these competing ideas. God has designed his people for thriving. God allows suffering into our lives. Thriving and suffering can coexist. And then Peter drops this bomb that says that sometimes it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will for us. And so the question is, how do we balance all of that out? How do we hold firmly to the goodness of who God is and recognize that at times suffering will be a part of our life? And the answer of how we do that is by looking to the person who has given us new life, looking to the person who has made it possible for us to be born again. God has designed us for thriving. Thriving and suffering can coexist, and the reason for that is because Christ has already suffered for us. Let's look at verse 18, then again at verse 22. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And if you jump down to verse 22, it says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, so so this concept of how can thriving and suffering coexist? The reason they can coexist is because Christ Jesus, our Savior, has already suffered for us. Like verse 18, verse 17 Knocks you off your feet. You're like, what in the world is happening? And then verse 18 lifts you higher than you could ever have imagined in the world. Those that phrase, for Christ also suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he could bring us to God. What other worldview, what other religion, what other idea of who God is could have the phrase, Christ also suffered? The fact that he loved us enough to go to his death, to die a brutal death on the cross, taking our sin and our shame and our punishment that we deserve because of his love for us. And then through that death, through his suffering, he produced something that we could never have on our own, which is righteousness from God. And that's the answer to this conundrum of how could a good God have it as his will for us to suffer? The reason is because he is a God who brings marvelous, righteous things through horrible things like evil and suffering. It is that suffering that we experience that God uses to bring us closer to him and to refine our souls into the image of who he's called us to be. What an an amazing picture of love. And then then with his victory, verse 22, it talks about his ascension into heaven. He's now seated at the right hand of God the Father. He's defeated every evil sin and power and principality and all those things. And now he is, is ruling and reigning in heaven and He will for all of eternity as he awaits to return to earth and bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? That sounds good, right? Did anyone notice that we skipped a few verses in the middle? I think we're running out of time, though. So we might well just go ahead and pass on. So two weeks ago, we went through the the sermon on marriage, and that was some difficult passages to to talk about in our cultural context. This one, this is even more confusing and challenging, I think, than the marriage one was. So um, I would love to pray and go, but I think we need to talk about what is happening in these passages, right? So uh, verses 19 through 21 are, some theologians say, these are the most difficult verses to understand in the entire New Testament. Uh, And the funny thing is, when Peter writes 2 Peter, he says that Paul is sometimes difficult to understand. And I'm like, Peter, you need to take a look in the mirror, man, because what in the world are you talking about with these verses? So let's read verses 19 through 21, then we're going to explain how this relates to this whole situation. It says, "Uh, Jesus was made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that is some complicated stuff. One of the commentaries I read said that there's at least 17 different ways you can interpret these few passages. And another guy said that the first thing he's gonna do when he gets to heaven is after he worships Jesus, he's gonna go find Peter and ask him, like, what in the world were you trying to communicate here? (laughs) I think, so what's happening is, is there's four big questions, but then there's one important truth, okay? And how you answer these questions is gonna, is gonna change how you view these verses, but that truth is the same no matter how you interpret this passage. So the questions are, who are the spirits in prison that Peter's talking about? Um, the, uh, what did Christ preach? When did Jesus or Christ preach? Uh, what is, and what is baptism's role in all of that? And so, so those are some things that are difficult to answer. Um, some things that are, that are um definitely not true. Uh, Some people have taken these verses to say Christ went to hell and preached a second chance at conversion for people who were in hell being tormented for not having faith in Jesus. And that's that's not what the Bible teaches elsewhere. Uh, like it's very clear that like God is appointed to each of us to die once and then comes judgment after death. Uh, some people take these verses to, to mean that Jesus went to hell after his death and for three days he was being uh, tortured in hell. That's not what the Bible teaches either. Um, so the, the Apostles' Creed, we say here at church sometimes, uh, there, there's a version of the creed that says after he died, he descended into hell. But that phrase was added in the 8th century uh, because of this verse, but it wasn't in the original version from the third century. And so when we say the Apostles' Creed, we do the version from the third century uh, that uh, does not include that, that phrase. And the reason I think Jesus didn't go to hell for three days after he died is because when he was on the cross, when his last words were, it is finished. Uh, there wasn't any more punishment left to be doled out. There wasn't any suffering left to accomplish. Jesus on the cross Paid all the penalty for our sin. And when he said it is finished, there was no more penalty left to play, pay, so he did not need to go to hell in that time period. And then um, uh, it talks about Jesus says that into, into your hands I commit my spirit, uh, like that he's, he's entrusting himself to God. He's not descending into hell after his death. Um, and then also this idea of like it says that he preached after he was made alive in the spirit, verses 18 and 19 is how that, that works. Um, something else we can say that is definitely not being taught here is that you are saved by being baptized. So when he says baptism now saves you, like if you just take that out of context, it sounds like you become a Christian by being baptized. But that wouldn't explain how the thief on the cross could have been saved. Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. So obviously you can be a believer and not have been baptized. And I think what Peter's doing with the baptism thing is he's comparing it to Noah and he's saying that there was a, a group of people, an elect chosen people from God who were brought through the waters of judgment and, and found salvation or safety because of God's work. And in the same way, baptism is a picture of that. If the water represents death and burial and, and being judged for our sins, when you go under the water and then come up out of it, raised to walk in newness of, of, of life, that's because of the, the work that Jesus has done, he has saved us through the waters for new life in Christ. That's why you're not saved through baptism. So I think most likely what's happening is there, there's three different ways you can look at this. Um, Jesus was preaching through Noah to the people who were not yet believers when Noah was alive, that's one option another way you could look at this is say that Jesus was preaching to not yet believers in the 40 days he was on earth after his resurrection before his ascension Uh, and another way that you could take this is that Jesus is um, stomping on demons faces on his way to heaven and that's who he's preaching to he's declaring victory over Satan and demons and evil as he ascends through the spirit realm into heaven any of those interpretations you take, the overarching truth that is important, though, is Christ also suffered for us. And through Christ's suffering, we have been given the ability to find new life in Christ. And this idea that holiness can come through suffering, even the suffering that we experience can be a tool that God uses to bring greater righteousness in our life. And, and that's the place we wanna, we wanna land the plane this morning, is realizing that God has designed us to thrive. That thriving can happen here on this earth even as we are simultaneously experiencing seasons of suffering because we know that God in his goodness uses even the pain and the suffering we experience to bring us closer to him and to refine us into the image of who he has called us to be just like he used his son's suffering to bring us closer to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for your word and the way that we can study it and, and uh, um, have this picture of, of a thriving life. Lord, Lord, we confess that sometimes we think that good days and a, a love for life uh, too much in worldly terms and not in the terms that you show us in your word. So I pray that as we meditate on what it means to follow you and to have a good, day, good days full of, full of life, I pray that we would submit our desires to your word and we would see how your picture of thriving for us is what our hearts are really longing for. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, um, we are going to spend some time discussing now, so I want you to go through that passage and say, what do you think Noah is really representing in this passage? And what we do is we have, so so if you're new here, the reason we sit at tables is so that after we discuss this passage together, we can turn inward and we can encourage one another with what God has shown us through the study of his Word. So we have three questions to guide our discussion. Uh, The first one is, how would you describe the good life? What first comes to mind with that phrase and how might your mental picture be different from Peter's? Uh, Secondly, when have you grown through pain? How does that build trust for God's will in your life amidst suffering? That's that verse 17 that sometimes if it's God's will for you to suffer, that can be for your own good. And then thirdly, uh, what types of things are Christians reviled for in our culture and that word reviled is weird, but Peter uses it like three times. What are the things that we are attacked for in our current day and age, and how can we bless those who attack us? So we're going to spend about ten minutes, oh, probably five minutes, uh, discussing these things, uh, and then we're going to end with a time of worship and communion. Thanks.
2: Well, here at Missio Day, we practice open communion. So you don't have to be a partner or a member here at the church to attend communion here, but... Um, you do have to have that faith that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you Um, and it's funny that Colbert mentioned the thief on the cross Um, I was listening to a sermon a little bit ago by an Irish preacher named Alistair Begg and he had a very comical approach to the simplicity of what Jesus has done for us and he's talking about you know if there's at any point you say I can go to heaven because I have done these works. At any point there is a first-person narrative here you've completely missed the boat and you're not on the ship going that direction. Uh, He says everything is from the third person and his example points to the thief on the cross. He's so excited to go to heaven because he said one of the first things I want to do is say, how'd you do it? You made it. You made it to heaven. And he goes in and says, you know, when the thief got there, I can only imagine. He's got this super hardcore thick Irish accent, so I might get excited and fall into that a little bit. But uh, he goes in and he says, like, he's like, I can only imagine when the thief got there, after Jesus said, you'll be with me today in paradise, he meets the the, the first angel guard and says, name. And he gives his name. He says, did you do any works? Nope. "Do Do you know why you're here? No. And, and he just goes through these lists of stuff and, he, and he's like let me get my supervisor. And so the angel leaves, gets his supervisor and returns. And the supervisor angel approaches him once more and says are you clear on the doctrines of justification? And he says never heard of them. And he says well by what means are you here? And he says the man on the middle cross said I could come. And it's as simple as that. For us being able to approach the the, the, the tables today, which are over there and up front here, the man on the middle cross says you can come to the table. It's that simple. His love is so overwhelming for you specifically that he was held to the cross and he suffered so you can come. And so when we look back to Good Friday a little bit ago um, or to the end of our life or whatever sufferings we're walking in, there is not, I need to clean myself up and be prettier so that Jesus will welcome me. Jesus is cleaning you up and making you as beautiful than you could ever imagine and has already done that work. So I want to demonstrate one more way why um, we can have faith that Jesus is the one that cleaned you up. And these verses a little just a, just a half a chapter ago in First Peter spell out the exact opposite of what we are but why the man on the middle cross says you can come he committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So friends, if you have not taken communion, or you have not sure about how to put your faith in Jesus, he is the one that is doing the work and bringing it to completion in you. Uh, Let us worship and let's go to the table.